This episode is brought to you by The One Summit, two days that would change your life forever. For tickets, go to theonesummit.com. Welcome to Careers Unplugged, the weekly show connecting you to secrets of career success. Careers Unplugged is hosted by Rich Sayer and Stu Hayes and proudly sponsored by the Master of Me coaching program. If you feel being happy, committed and passionate about your career is important, you're in the right place. My name's Rich Sayer and I'm here with the fabulous co-founder of Careers Unplugged and the Master of Me coaching program, Stu Hayes. Good morning, Stu. Good morning, Rich. How's things? I am in good spirits and... uh, You do sound in good spirits? Well, thank you. I feel energised, excited about uh, our special (laughs) guest today. (laughs) I am too. Um, In fact... This is going to be a really uh, fascinating uh, interview for me because our special guest today shares two of my great passions, being innovation and culture, group culture. And the really interesting thing is what he's doing at the moment to help these things occur side by side. So a bit about, about him um, earlier on, he's got a behavioral sciences background with over 20 years experience in the technology industry culminating in a successful innovation consultancy called Valtio Proprietary Limited. Mm -hmm. He believes that innovation is everyone's birthright. Don't you love that? Mm. How's that going for you at at Instinct Innovation, Rich? Uh, You guys have always been innovative. It's going really well. And and it is an important thing. And it's got to be constant and incremental. You know, it's that whole 1% thing, just, just constantly, you know, feeding the innovation machine. Anyway, keep going about the guest. Well, let's see, what, let's see what he has to say about that later on. But mm. one thing that I love about, about this guy is that he's talking about not only is innovation everyone's birthright, mm. but actually that if we really get our act together as a country that, that, and embrace innovation and structure and organise it and get it to be the cultural paradigm, if you like, for the whole country, that the whole of Australia will benefit economically from this. Well, so, that, that's absolutely so, was the case it, it, throughout history. You know, we were great innovators in Australia because we're so isolated. But anyway, I'm going to talk more about that with our guest. Indeed. He is now the CEO and the co-founder of One Million Acts of Innovation Australia, which is a national not-for-profit incubator aiming to help Australia become the world leader or a world leader at least in innovation. It's my great pleasure to welcome to Careers Unplug, Con or Constantine, maybe, as mum might call you on occasions, Giorgio. (laughs) Thanks, guys. Um, Thanks for having me. And what a great introduction. I just want to honour the space you guys are creating. It's fantastic. (laughs) So, Con, it's uh, it's not every day that, uh, you know, I'm sort of chit-chatting with someone and they say, oh, yeah, no, I had this idea. I want to get a million acts of innovation. That's (laughs) that's, – where did that come from, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I'd love to say it was my unique idea and I'm the owner of it and all that kind of stuff, but, you know, that wouldn't be very collaborative, participatory. <laughs> um, in actual fact, it's a really good story. Um, in actual fact, this morning, just then I was having a conversation with John King. John King's the father of tribal leadership, and it's a book that went uh, New York Times bestseller about a couple of years ago now, and is a model that was used by Zappos, which is that uh, amazing company in the States that sells shoes online. They got bought by Amazon for $1.2 billion. They used the, the, method, the framework to build their high-performance uh, culture. And um, you, you know, I was on a – after I did my exit with Veltio, I 
called John and said, I want to be a fly on the wall with you because you're an amazing guy. Because uh, I had the privilege of, of, of attending a couple of his podcasts or, or web, webinars, I should say. And um, he said, yeah, let's do that. And so I had the privilege of being, having him in, in my car, driving around the West Coast of the USA, playing a bit of golf here and there. And he really looked, taught me a lot about lead, you know, a t- totally different level of uh, understanding of uh, two, di- two key concepts, relationship and leadership. And on that journey, he said to me, Con, I need you to go to Canada and check out this thing called One Million Acts of Innovation. It's been running for about five years. I'm the chairman, um, and I think you should take it to Australia. So a couple of months later, I took the family up there, went to Toronto and evaluated what they were doing. And I loved the spirit and the vision and the values that they were trying to adhere to. So I said, you know, I'm gonna, if you don't mind, I'm going to take it to Australia and take all the risk and see what we can do. And so starting with a clean slate, learning from their, from their lessons over the last five years, um, not really emulating how they're doing it, but uh, taking a very different, open, broad approach, um, but basically innovating how we're going to do it. We want to try and help Australia become a top five country for innovation in the next five years, uh, mainly by um, teaching through whether that's academically or heuristically through experiences, projects, um, uh, or, or integration projects where we're trying to uh, integrate ideation, access, and funding. We're trying to teach Australia this thing called innovation culture. And it's something that I think a lot of us have forgotten, or it's something that but it's something that we witnessed. We we grew accidentally to some extent um, at Veltio, and you know, so so that's uh, I guess how we came up with. Uh, that's how we landed uh, with the Million Acts of Innovation for Australia. So as in the adventure. Let's crank the clock backwards somewhat. Um, yeah. I'd like to get back to uh, how your career sort of evolved. Um, you know, you you know, go go right back to you know, what was your first job? My first job, proper job, probably was uh, I was I worked with my dad at uh, a factory, you know, pushing boxes and making talcum powder. Believe it or not, for <laughs> uh, Sol Pattinson's a big oh, manufacturing yeah. company. Uh, chemist uh, sort of company, and uh, it was actually great because I got a you know I got a hefty workout picking up those twenty five kilogram bags and putting them into the big mixer and all that kind of stuff. And I remember receiving my first paycheck, paycheck and it was back in the day when you actually got cash in an envelope, <laughs> um, and it was you know it had all the details of your payslip and all there printed on that same envelope. And you, you know I remember opening it up, fanning the dollars out. I don't know it was about three hundred bucks, uh, fanning the, the dollars out, putting it. In, and this is like a summer 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 job. Putting it on the ground, looking at it, and go, "Is this what everyone freaks out over? Is this what everyone stresses over? Is this what everyone, you know, aspires for?" Wow, really? Mm. Yeah. And it was at that point that I sort of—I mean, don't get me wrong—I I had I've had my journey with money, but um, you know, it's, uh, it was an early—I don't know if anyone else thinks that or had that journey, that relationship. But I sort of went, kind of feels unnatural, <laughs> you know. The level, the level of. Uh of energy that it, that it attracts Ex- expended to yeah, look I think money is a man, yeah, money is a man made thing right so yeah, and it is a it's the most scarce uh, thing on the planet so um, it actually is, is interesting and I think from there that's when my, my journey of inquiry started around okay what is this thing called money what does it really mean is it a means to an end does, is it the eternal panacea for happiness and all that kind of stuff? And I've had I've had my experiences there with that, you know. And you get to a point when you you get to a point where you realise that okay, these things give you possessions, great. Then after a while, you realise oh, those possessions end up possessing you. Oh, that's not great. 
<laughs> and then you, you know, you do a little bit of a journey of working yourself, and you sort of figure after a while, you go, you know what? And I like this. This came up again during the exit where we, you know, had a, a very big liquidity event. Um, and I went, okay, how's this going to change me? And I, you know, I didn't do anything crazy, uh, but I ended up, um, you know, monitoring myself. But I realized it's, you know, like being an entrepreneur or being innovative or creating value is more than just about, about money. It's about something that's going to be more enduring than that. And for us, it was uh, the, the journey was about the responsibility of an entrepreneur is to actually help others transcend them as them as that hierarchy of needs to be able to become, you know, to, to transcend and to be able to be empowered and to be self-directed and self-governed. And that's what juices me up the most. Because if I can do that on a daily basis, if I can do that across the nation with a million acts of innovation, then the money will come. That's a byproduct. Mm. Money is a result of 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 the actions rather than the the driver so Con, yeah. once you once you've had this experience you've you've laid out your your 300 bucks on your bed or wherever it was and and you've looked back at all the 20s and 50s and 10s staring you in the face and realized yeah. that that wasn't uh, the be all and end all how did that affect your goal setting in your life at that point well i was still very um unconscious and immature back then so you know I guess it wasn't the actual uh, value of the paper, but it was the value of the buying power of that paper. And, you know, you get to a point where, because I I grew up in a blue-collar family, um, relatively disruptive and a little bit volatile, um, which taught me lots lots about disruption, lots about survival. But, um, you know, I never had the joys of being able to go out there and and buy something um, at my own, you know, at with my own autonomy, if you like, without my, my own decision-making. So that was interesting. Um, but I knew quickly that um, I always had a question mark around, is this, this is not the, uh, surely isn't the answer to eternal happiness, having more and more and more money mm. alone. Mm. So I had an, you know, there was always a question in the back of my head. So I guess that's how, that was the impact. Has there been, you know, uh, turning points along the journey? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, I've I've made lots of money and lost lots of money. Um, I learn more from my mistakes than I do from my successes. And it was really interesting. It came up this morning when I was talking to John, um, who's based in Albuquerque. Um, he said, like, just before a breakthrough, there needs to be a, a real, you know, uh, breakdown just before it. So... And I don't know why that is. You know, it's the human well, it's condition, I guess. The concept of perturbation, that it, just at the point of change. Uh, Second yeah. law of thermodynamics. Correct. There was a Nobel Prize awarded on that idea. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Wow. Okay. But that, that's that the out. concept. You know, resistance is greatest right at the point of change. And it, it's something that people have observed, um, you know, philosophically, psychologically, uh, lots of things. So yeah. just for you, Con, so in your journey, you know, you've, you've worked a, a summer job, presumably you're, you're still at high school. Um, what did you do then? Yeah. You went and, how did you get, how did you sort of end up well, um, getting to I a guess, point where you had a, a big saleable consulting firm in the first place? Yeah, yeah. Look, it wasn't a direct and easy transition. I guess I went from there um, to university and believe it or not, I, I, was, I was a big, big uh, student of economics, but didn't get enough marks to do it at Sydney, at New South Wales. My, my parents wouldn't let me go anywhere else, so I ended up just doing anything at uni. I ended up, believe it or not, studying social work. 
even though um, back then, this is I'm talking about, and I had my first computer when I was in, 80, uh, in 1984, 1983, um, showing my age, but I always loved computers, but a, a career in technology was not really easy back then. It wasn't, it wasn't uh, as, as democratic as it is today, as, 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 as easily accessible. But then from there, I ended up, um, I was obviously too commercial for my social work colleagues and, and faculty. Ended up finishing that, that damn degree and getting out of it um, and being feeling quite um, victimized, if you like. So I never actually practiced as a social worker. Um, getting out and buying my first pizza shop, believe it or not, at the end wow. of 21, I think. Fantastic. Um, that was an amazing experience. Um, wouldn't want to do it again, but it was great. <laughs> I learned a lot about myself, and it was during the recession we had to have of 92, 93, whatever. So that really, that really hurt us. Ended up having to close it down. Um, that that was painful because it was my mainly my dad's money that I lost. You know, um, you know I navel gazed and was depressed for two weeks, and then I said, "All right, that's enough of that. Let's move on." <laughs> so then, wanted to try and get into technology because it started to become a little bit more open and more accessible. Um, was looking at trying to become an engineer. Um, luckily, I didn't. Uh, because I'm, I'm more of a social, I'm more of a salesperson. Ended up getting into sales into a company that was um, fast tracked uh, with Microsoft uh, to be part of the Windows 95 launch. That was amazing, and I first became pretty successful in that that space. Ended up jumping from job to job, getting addicted to pay rises and title changes. Um, to be honest with you, when I look back at it now, I see that I was actually a professional absentee. I was really, really good at sucking up to bosses and getting pay rises, and you know, look, I was performing, <laughs> but but I wasn't, I wasn't, you know what I mean? I wasn't juiced as I am now, and that's okay. I think it's evolutionary. It's part of the developmental process. You get to a point when you get to the end of it, and you go, you know what? It doesn't matter how much I have, I can always spend more. <laughs> uh, we're like gas, aren't we? We're just uh, we'll expand to whatever room we're given. That's right. That's right. Uh. And so. You know, I got to that point, ended up uh, joining some amazing companies who were gave me lots of opportunity. And it was there where I got a little bit of a glimpse of the that I'm a, a quite a slightly different leader, um, and that I like I like having teams that challenge me, that are juiced up, um, and it's a little bit cult like. You know, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not ashamed to say that. Um, why? Because that's hyper energy. It's hyper hyper passion. Um, and then, you know, fast forward, I ended up starting to become negative around large corporations because I couldn't, I didn't have the kind of autonomy or entrepreneurialism that I could have. It got to a point where I exhausted all options and then gave it all up and started Beltier with a couple of co-founders where that gave me, you know, the, the test bed for autonomy, for mastery and purpose. And we hired, and I said, what are, what are the things that these large organizations that I work for had, had all wrong and wouldn't allow me to do? I want to flip that on its head and actually do the polar opposite. And when, whenever we partnered with some large organizations, some of them big, big um, consulting companies who partnered with us and they got in, in under, the, under our tent, they said, this doesn't make sense. This should not be working. This is absolute chaos. And I said, and I would smile. I said, then I'm work. Then, then I'm on point. I know I'm doing the right thing. If you think this is chaos, then we're doing the right thing. Because, you know, self, it got to a point, at, now we know the language of it. We call it self-governance. But at that point in time, we just knew it as I'm doing what I, I want to do for free. 
I'm doing that thing that I would do for free. Um, and so we would, we would find people who are aligned to what we're doing with, with Beltio. Beltio ended up partnering with Salesforce.com and Apple, but we also imp- got, did our management consulting implementations to change behaviors, improve sales, improve service, and do some custom development work. So we, you know, we ended up trading with the top 100 companies in Australia. We did about 250 projects. We did the exit within four years. Um, to a New York-based company, you know, and if you consider that only 1% of companies do successful exits worldwide, probably less in Australia, and um, and we did one successfully, and the fact that 75% of acquisitions fail within the first two years because of many different reasons, um, and our company, and Veltio, now, now called Blue Wolf, um, is tripled in size in Australia, then you can consider that to be a success. So that's sort of in a nutshell. So the, the success for that was driven by the culture you left behind after the exit? Yes, absolutely. So it, and I was the, people, the first obviously. person to leave. Well, the people, the, the culture of the people. Yep. You know, I was the first person to leave, and even without my leadership, um, it continued to grow and it continued to flourish, and that's exactly what the kind of leadership we need to be leaving. That's 21st century leadership. Mm. And, you, know, you know, it's not uh, – leadership arises when everyone says, hey, we did it without con. Mm. I agree with that's, you. That's when it should be. If it's dependent, I mean, look at Steve Jobs. Don't get me wrong, I think Apple's doing some great stuff, but without Steve Jobs, there's a marked difference. Got to say so, because I've got some things that don't work, and I've had every Apple since 1984, the first Mac. (laughs) (laughs) And at the moment, my mail's not even working properly, so there's there's some some weird things. I'd like to go back a little bit on a couple of things that you said there, Con. Um, Back to the pizza shop. Because I, I too had a, a, a business when I was young that didn't go the direction I wanted it to, yeah. and it was a painful learning experience for me. Uh, similar thing, you know. There's a sort of expectation of success, and and the proverbial balloon gets burst. Yeah. Was that a big turning point for you? And was that a dark time? I mean, you said you navel gazed for two weeks. You've done well to get out of it that quick. Was that a, was that a dark time? It was. Um, I had just gotten married as well, so there was those extra pressures, yeah. um, someone else's money, you know, my dad's. Mm. Um, you know, but it was, that's, that's, you, know, you know, I was depressed the first time in my life, I guess, I was that level of depressed. But I, it was sort of okay. It was almost self-soothing to some extent. But I only, you know, after two weeks, I said, okay, you know, what, what am I going to do next? Let's take some action. Um, you know, I guess I didn't have the maturity at the time to see what are the lessons here. You know, being a young entrepreneur at the time and back then, it wasn't a big, as big as and sexy as as big and sexy as it is today. Yeah. Um, you know, in '92, '93, lots of people were going broke because of the recession we had there, yeah. um, and all that jazz. But I guess the biggest thing that I learned was that you know, if it's to be, it, it, it's it's up to me. You. You can blame all you all you like, and I did a little bit of that. I blamed the economy. I blamed you know suppliers, or I blamed um, a big uh, retail chain that was coming in. Um, I think it was uh, I can't remember the name of them, but it was a big competitor that was coming in to beat to knock out Pizza Hut because it was in the days when, if you remember, pizza from Pizza Hut used to be like twenty bucks a pizza before the competition mm. came in, and now mm. you can buy three pizzas for twenty bucks. And this is 25 years later or something like that. Yep. So, so you know, it's amazing what competition do. But what competition does is also is knock out, you know, the the solopreneurs, right, the individual shops. I mean, not, not to say that we're competing with those guys, but you are 
you know, regardless of what I think as an entrepreneur, a lot of, I find a lot of entrepreneurs say, oh, we don't have any competition. And it, you've sort of got to go, well, it's not a, you're not the one to judge that. The, your customers. No. Does your customer think people, you have competition? People who say that need to go and do marketing 101. You know, uh, yeah. exactly. You know, there's uh, there's non-direct and indirect competition for every yeah. everything. It's like yeah. saying I sell Coca-Cola, but we're the only cola in the market. Or, or yeah, it's yeah. okay. Well, you're in direct competition with bottled water because they're both drinks. Correct. You know, and that's it's right. all it's all about right. what you said earlier, Con. You know, there's a, if there is a, a scarcity of money, then clearly anything that else that costs money is a, is a competitor to some degree. What go back though? What would be the hardest thing you've had to go through in that journey? Because I don't sense that that was a really tough time, um, probably because you were young and therefore you bounced back quickly, you know. Yeah. I mean, it was hard and you, you probably felt yeah. terrible and everything else, but yeah. I sense there was probably some, some tougher stuff that's come later on. Um, yeah, look, yeah, adjusting to – I think the biggest challenge was fighting the – constant pressure to be institutionalized by large organizations. I'm not going to mention who they are. Um, I, I've always, you know, it actually, it was crystallized just this week. I met someone who said something to me that made a lot of sense, and she's a, quite a gifted person. But I've always been a we player. For some reason, I innately believe that we can do more, you know, if I look at the world through we versus me. Um, and... In large organizations, when you're a we player, um, you take more risks. You don't play the uh, command and control or the um, political game very well. I'm not a good politician. And, and as a result, you get sacrificed at the altar. You are easy, you cannon fighter. You know, um, and that's one of the reasons I left and started my own gig. I didn't want to have to worry about that. Mm. I wanted to hire people who were, who were going to be receptive to that. That was that were, that were dark times. Many jobs. So I've had twelve jobs in my life, and it was, you know, and I would leave because I, you know, couldn't get through to leadership. I couldn't get through to our colleagues around. We've got to be a collaboration is not about public relations. Collaboration is about giving something up. Leadership is about giving something up. No one ever wanted to hear that. That was tough because I was, you know, I'm lonely. I'm on my own mm. singing this damn song. So Veltia was a chance to prove that right, to prove, to prove them wrong and to prove my thesis right to some extent. You know, it probably wasn't as crystallized as it is now in terms of you know, the way I communicated, but at the time there was just something wasn't right. And feeling alone in large organizations and moving from job to job, it's hard starting a new job. It takes you a long time to, to, to ramp. Um, and I never wanted to, you know, give in to their principles of, look, you just got to play the politics game, play cards close to yourself, don't share unless there's something in it for you. Um, there's no such thing as, you know, the uh, play a noble, noble cause and there's something in it for us, we. You know, it was, it's really hard. It's constant, especially when you're in a sales role, in a sales leadership role. Because everyone's actually trying to cover their ass. Because if you, you know, understand, if you, if you believe in what uh, Simon Sinek says in his recent book, Leaders Need Last, you know, he talks about you got to extend the circle of trust to beyond the four walls of your company to include your customers. Unlike what's been happening in the 20th century, which is I just extended to the four walls of my boardroom to make sure that those guys, I look after them, they look after me, and we're safe. Everywhere else, it's dangerous. Mm. So, Con, let's talk about innovation. Yeah, because it's 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 getting you out of bed every morning with spring in your step. 
I, uh, I, I have my own business of which, you know, we've been, always been pretty innovative and we like to uh, uh, be constantly driving change but both from the inside and the outside and, and uh, you know, a lot of business people know there's sometimes more money in me too than brand new mm. but brand new, if you get it right, you, you have first-to-market advantage. Talk to me about your tips for innovation, and if you're going to get one million acts of innovation happening in Australia, um, and I know you're going to give us some, uh, some tips to put uh, on the careersunplugged.com website that our listeners can download, but g- give us a few ideas. What, what are the, the things that, that business owners and, and operators and even people within business can do to, to uh, innovate and improve their results? Um, okay. I think <clears throat> the first thing is this concept of safety and inclusion that scares the bejesus out of lots of leaders. Mm-hmm. So how the reality is that um, in order to, to have a self-governing culture or organisation, because, you know, really at the end of the day, you've got to ask yourself as an entrepreneur, as a leader, as a, as a CEO, do you really want to be cracking the whip every day? Do you really want to be micromanaging everything and making sure everyone's doing stuff? Or do you want to be at the, at the leading creatively and engaging in, in developing value, whether that's for your company, for your ecosystem, for your industry, or for your nation? Um, and I think collectively we can't do that without uh, a culture of safety and inclusion. Mm. What I mean by that is if it's not safe for me to be creative, to take a risk, to um, – uh, you know, offer you an idea about how we can do something better, whether I'm a salesperson, a janitor, a, de- uh, a research and development person. Um, I'm not going to offer you anything. Um, I'm only just going to provide you just enough to get my job and I'll, I'll be living in, a, in a, a sense of compliance. So, and that's what I talk about when I talk about a professional absentee. You know, people will only do just enough work to keep their jobs. And that's what happens when you just motivate people through sticks and carrots mm. and, uh, and adopt a command and control mode of, of leadership. Now, that's a cop-out in the 21st century because if you have a look at these um, you know, Gen Xs, Gen Ys, these kids are amazing, <clears throat> amazing. The millennials, to, I went to a, a kidpreneur program where I was a mentor to these 10-year-olds and when I looked at the curriculum and I looked at the kids, I said, no, no chance these guys are going to get it. By the end of it, I was so wrong and I was, you know, I was uh, punching myself because I couldn't believe how much I prejudged them. These kids were the most uh, uh, innovative, collaborative, courageous and fearless kids or people that I've ever met. And by the time we got them to the markets to sell their, you know, makeshift products, uh, jewellery and candles, uh, um, I was just so Im- Inspired, and I thought to myself, I could take t- six of these kids and take them into a boardroom and teach lots of different boards, lots of different lessons, and how they how they operate, how they collaborate. So somewhere along the way, we've actually schooled ourselves out of being innovative. So you know, so, and that starts because of because of a lot of fear, anger, guilt, and shame that is built out of um, our academic systems and our. Uh, bureaucratic systems. It's, so it almost sounds so, like uh, the. I don't know if you know Buckminster Fuller. Bucky Fuller had the mistake, mystique, and you know mm-hmm. Bucky was one of the great thinkers of the 20th century. But what you're talking yeah. about there is the environment always wins. So if people are too afraid to make a mistake, uh, then yep. they 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 don't try, 
and, and yeah. therefore the innovation halts. Oh, look, you know, in the last year I've spent a bit of time gifting my time into high-performance organisations um, to help them uh, to help identify their perception gap on where they on where they don't have high performance, and I find that complacency is so addictive. And where an executive may say, "We have high performance here. Look at this. Look at that," I will say, oh, that, "That's great, but you know." This is this is. I'm talking about a um, uh, a landscape shift here. I'm talking mm. about putting on different lenses. Well, you know, is it possible that you could actually have X, Y, and Z in your business, allowing you to do A, B, and C? And they, uh, that's impossible. And I said, let me show you. And then you know, you show a mobile application with live dashboards around lead indicators in the business, or you know, your wall of fame or wall of shame in terms of the performance of the organisation and all that kind of stuff. And people don't know that those things exist. So, you know, Con, people... just uh, we're we're, we're going to run out of time shortly. And I, this is a topic that I could talk about with you for days, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. If you had to distill it down to a golden nugget that you'd give uh, yeah. a piece of advice to give to someone who wanted to have a, a big impact in the world or, you know, they're at a different part of their career, they, they need, need to get focused on something, what yeah. would it be? <clears throat> I think you need to start with answering the question, what would you do for free? What is that thing that will get you out of bed on your worst day and one that is related to legacy. So that, that whatever that, that you know, because um, that's what's going to get you to be innovative. Uh, we're starting to talk, as I, I'm engaged with a company called Flow Engine as well. Um, and there's some interesting research coming out of um, an organization of the States who's doing lots of R&D around Flow. I mean, I, my, my high value is Flow. I only want to be in Flow 24-7 all the time. Because when I'm in when when I'm in flow, and now scientifically they're proving when people are in flow, they're more creative, more innovative, more engaging, um, able to actually counter burnout, and that's that's news to me, um, and uh, you know able to out execute because they're out behaving. At the end of the day, that's all that matters. You're only going to get so much out of uh, pursuing um, other extrinsic drivers. But really, what is the intrinsic driver in yourself? And this is a, this is a journey. It's not a destination um, um, where you've got to continue asking yourself, you know, what is that thing that I would do for free? Because if you can answer that question, that's going to be the answer that's going to make you invaluable to others. Because there's no chance in, the, in hell that you're going to be best in the world if you're doing something because you're getting paid. Mm. I guarantee you that. Yeah. yeah. It's about, it's, it comes back to passion and enthusiasm, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Intrinsically, right? So... To finish off, like just in relation to, you know, so it starts with safety and inclusion. That's a leadership mandate. How do you create safety for you in your organization for, for people to, to talk, to open up, to collaborate, to take risks, to fail? And failure is a biological necessity to success, by the way. So we've got to pivot that. Um, and then inclusion, which is how do you, get, does the, how do you or, or, or a colleague go and pull people into the organization or into a conversation that may not be specifically in their charter because you're going to get diversity. We need to uh, embrace diversity. Um, and that's the start. I mean, there's a lot of other things we're doing, and that's just the, the environmental piece of uh, innovation culture, which we talk about with a million acts of innovation. And uh, look, you know, we'll, yeah, with the article, we'll, we'll share uh, what our top five uh, uh, points are, tips are, to be able to increase innovation in your organization. Yes. But first and foremost, please don't think that you, when you hire 
a chief of innovation that you're going to get a lot of innovation. <laughs> Mistake number one. Con, that, that, is, that is actually all we've got time for. I just want to thank you so much for coming on the show. And, uh, no and just a reminder to the listeners to go to careersunplugged.com and uh, download Con's tips to innovation. I know that uh, I'm going to be applying some of those tips to my business. Stu, have you got anything you'd like to add before we wrap uh, it up? Thank you, Con. Website for people to learn more about Million Acts of Innovation? Yeah, look, uh, so we're emerging this year. So with 1millionactsofinnovation.org.au, you can um, come up there. We've, uh, you can actually put your information in there to get a newsletter. Uh, but we're, we're, you, or you can join us on the Facebook page, which is omi.aus, so, which is the, um, you know, the acronym. Excellent. Con, thanks so much for being on the show. To all of you at home, in the car, wherever you are, thanks for joining us. We hope the insights provided by Con will help you on your journey towards a more innovative life and career. Make a point of visiting careersunplugged.com and check out Con's document and and, uh, article there to help you out. Leave a comment, get access to a whole bunch of resources designed specifically to help you make it big in life, career and business. This has been Careers Unplugged with Rich and Stu. Hi, it's Damien Christoph here from The Wellness Guys and 100 Not Out. Time is running out to secure your seat at this year's Wellness Summit. Make no mistake, this year's event will indeed sell out, so hurry up and avoid disappointment. Join myself and my Wellness Guys co-hosts, the Up For A Chat Girls, Careers Unplugged Boys and Thermomix Queen, Joe Whitten, and more as we share with you and 600 others at Crown Melbourne all of our latest insights and inspirations from the nutrition, movement and mindset worlds. Tickets are just 297 for this two-day, 15-hour powerhouse event. To register for the event, go to www.thewellnesssummit.com and we'll see you there. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.